Let's go ahead and make our way in the Bible to Luke chapter 9, if you will. Luke chapter 9. As we continue looking at the Gospel of Luke here on Sunday mornings. And we've made our way as far as verse 18, which we will pick it up with this morning. Luke chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one in the seat below you in front. Uh, If you don't have a Bible and would like one, feel free to come see me. I'll be glad to give you one after service as our gift to you. Let's begin reading in verse 18, if you will. Now it happened as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am. And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Luke has specifically ordered each event in his gospel to help convey to his recipient, a man named Theophilus, a very methodical account of all that Jesus Christ has said and done. At the time that Luke wrote this, there were many stories and written letters concerning the person of Jesus Christ and the things that he had supposedly done. Luke's desire was to catalog and chronicle for his, uh, the individual he was in employment to, for Luke was a doctor. Theophilus was a very wealthy Greek man who uh, had Luke in his uh, service as a physician, and that's the relationship that doctors and individuals had, wealthy individuals, I should say, specifically had in that culture. When Luke became a Christian, it appeared that he wanted Theophilus also to come and to receive Christ as his Savior. And so he wrote the book of Luke and also the book of Acts to do just that, to give Theophilus an understanding of all that Jesus Christ had done, and that Theophilus could have a certainty to the events, meaning that he would know for sure since Luke had such, uh, such um, diligently cataloged all of it for him, that he would therefore understand that these things actually had taken place. When we come to chapter 9, we come to one of the pinnacles of Luke's letter. And that is the confession of Peter into the true identity of Jesus Christ. Before it was conjecture and speculation to the true identity of Jesus, and now Peter, not having it revealed from himself, but from God the Father, now declares openly in verse 20 that he is the Christ. When Peter stated that, It's true that he identified Jesus Christ correctly. But there were all kinds of cultural connotations that went along with that designation that were not true. 
the Messiah was the most anticipated uh, individual uh, to come to the Jewish people. They, uh, they welcomed his arrival. They, they longed for it. They hoped for it. They waited for it with great anticipation. Because in their minds, they had derived from the prophecies of the Old Testament incorrectly that when the Messiah would come, he would release them from Gentile oppressions, in this particular case, the Roman oppression that was upon them, they would be once again returned to that zenith of existence that they once experienced under King David. They would be free and the Gentile communities would be punished and judged for their unwillingness to subject themselves to Jehovah, the one true God. Now, the reason for this uh, misunderstanding was because the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning Messiah either indicate the events of his first coming or his second coming. They believed that the Messiah was going to come at one moment in time and establish everything promised, therefore, in the Old Testament. However, they were confused because by some of the accounts of the prophet Isaiah and others, the Messiah was going to suffer greatly. But then there were other portions of the prophecies in the same books that showed him as the conquering victor, reigning from Jerusalem, such as in Zechariah and other Old Testament books. Some Jewish rabbis concluded that there were going to be two messiahs. And so when Jesus came, the religious leaders did not recognize Jesus to be the true Messiah due to the fact that he didn't fit the profile that they had created based incorrectly on the Old Testament prophets, and therefore they rejected him as their Messiah. But those who identified him as Messiah... They believed still that he was going to bring about this revolution, this freedom from oppression, this new zenith of existence, etc. This is why you find the disciples arguing amongst themselves, who is going to be the greatest in your kingdom? thinking that their loyalty that they showed Messiah when he came uh, and followed him and left their families and their work and so forth to follow him the three years of his earthly ministry would warrant them some place of prominence within his kingdom as he established it here on the earth. In fact, this was such a great um, concern of theirs that some of them even solicited the help of their mother to approach Jesus and said, listen, can my son sit on your left hand and on your right hand? You know, once you pull out the big guns of mom, where do you go from there? But the whole understanding of the people, of the disciples, and acknowledging that he was the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one from God, that the kingdom of God was now going to be established physically here on this earth. But Jesus had to prepare them for the reality of his death, his crucifixion, of course, and his resurrection. You see, they didn't understand that he was going to come first to deal with the sins of the world. And this encompassed all the suffering prophecies of the Old Testament. And then in his second physical return to this earth, he is going to establish the kingdom physically here on this earth as promised in the other portions of the Old Testament prophecies. So he has to now prepare his disciples for the reality that is ahead. He has to show them that this is not the march to glory that you anticipate and think that it is. So he tells them very clearly after Peter makes the proclamation of who he is, the Christ of God in verse 20, he immediately tells them that he is going to be 
ridiculed, rejected, and killed, and on the third day be raised. Verse 21. Now he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one. Why? Because he knew that he was fighting against a persona that was created by the religious leaders that were, was inaccurate. Throughout the Gospels, you find numerous times that the people tried to force him into the position of being king and were willing to militarily try to overthrow the Roman Empire, which was a futile thing to think and to consider because of the superiority of the army of the Roman Empire. In fact, this translates and traces all the way to the acceptance of Barabbas over Jesus. Because the people believed that Barabbas was going to uh, ensure them their victory over Rome where the Messiah, Jesus, appears to have let them down in such a pursuit. He immediately tells the people the reality. He tells his disciples the reality. I'm making my way to Jerusalem. We are in the last year of Jesus' life and ministry here on this earth as we've entered into chapter 9. And from chapter 9 to the end of the book, this is the last year of his public ministry. He makes it abundantly clear that the Son of Man, identifying him with a term that is used in the Old Testament of Messiah in Daniel chapter 7, must be rejected must suffer. And by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. But know that on the third day be raised. He told his disciples that so clearly that you really can't miss it. And yet, guess what? They missed it. They didn't fully understand what he was saying, to the point that when they saw him arrested and when they saw him crucified, the majority of the disciples were so discouraged they stayed away, thinking that their hopes were dashed of any, uh, any attempt for the kingdom to be established here on this earth. He tells them of the reality from the very beginning. One of the reasons I love the Bible so much is that the Bible tells me reality from fiction. The Bible clearly communicates to me what I can anticipate and expect in the current world culture in which I live today. It doesn't sugarcoat things. Do you notice that the Bible clearly articulates the fault and failures of everyone except the one who had no fault and failure, who is Jesus Christ? The Bible tells it to me straight. And those who are willing to read it and to learn from it will realize that. Jesus made it abundantly clear, I'm not going to just tell you what you want to hear. I'm always going to tell you what you need to hear. By telling them in advance, he was in hopes trying to prepare them for the shock of what was still yet coming. Because he knew their heart and their minds were not prepared for such a uh, startling revelation watching their Messiah being arrested, watching their Messiah being brutally handled by the Romans, watching their Messiah be crucified between two thieves. This was something that they were just not ready at this point to experience. The Bible tells us clearly what we can anticipate. The Bible always tells us from a very straight-shooting perspective what we can look forward to in Christ and apart from Him. The Bible is always going to be honest with you. Of course, we've cultivated a culture today that unfortunately just desires to hear what it wants to hear. Even when individuals have significant problems in their life and they consult others to help them find advice to resolve some of those problems in life, I have often found that those individuals will shop for answers to find what they want to hear rather than what they actually need to hear. And sometimes we need to hear it straight up, don't we? Sometimes we need to hear it just as plainly and as clearly presented uh, and articulated as possible. And yes, it might sting and hurt for a moment. 
but in hopes that it'll catch our attention and we can make the necessary changes. But in the wake of his rejection, he also wants to anticipate what it's going to cost each and every one of them and one of us to follow him as a Christian. Now remember, many of them thought by him being the Christ, and he was the Christ, that they were going to, at certain times, secure positions of prominence and power in his kingdom, which they will in the everlasting kingdom, but not yet. And though the kingdom of God has been inaugurated and it has begun, it is not yet fully established. That is still yet to come. So he had to prepare the disciples. Now, if you truly desire to follow me, here's what's going to have to happen. You're not going to be immediately applauded and celebrated and placed in positions of prominence and power and prestige. No. It's going to require three things. It's going to require, number one, that you deny yourself. Number two, that you take up your cross. And number three, that you follow after me. This type of Christianity in our culture today, for some, would sound radical. And they believe, these individuals, and they have openly stated it, that these are for individuals who truly want to be mature followers of Jesus Christ. But this isn't the standard for everyone. I don't know how they come to that conclusion. I don't know where it says, listen, you can be part of the A team or part of the B team or sit on the bench and do absolutely nothing. For in every place that this account is recorded for us in the Bible, it states very openly and clearly that if anyone desires to follow after me, that means anyone. The Greek word means anyone. Uh, and it means everyone who will desire to follow him. This is applied to each and every Christian, each and every believer in Jesus Christ. This isn't for just those select few who really want to radically follow Jesus in a manner that is so culturally uh, 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 counter to that culture and so forth. But no, this is for each and every believer in Jesus Christ. And he is saying this to us up front because he wants to know us to know that we will be hated, that we will be persecuted, that we will tell the world what they need to hear and not what they want to hear, and we will be persecuted for that. We will be ridiculed. We will be mocked. We will be told that we are holding back the progression of academic excellence and progression here within our nation because we're holding on to an adequate or an ancient and inadequate faith that is no longer relevant for our society today. We are going to be told that we are foolish for throwing our lives away in subjection to the will of God rather than to live life to the fullest here and now. Because in the interim, between his first and second coming, he wanted to prepare each and every one of us for the journey ahead. See, a disciple in that culture was one who followed the teacher, followed the rabbi, in hopes of one day succeeding him. Meaning, not that they would ever become equal to their rabbi, but they would then succeed to continue teaching what that rabbi has taught them to others. And that is why in the New Testament, Paul paints this picture for us that Jesus is the head of the body of Christ, the church, and we are the body here on this earth fulfilling the will of God and continuing the ministry that he started 2,000 years ago. But to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, takes four dimensions. They all start with the letter D. It takes, number one, desire. It takes, number one, desire. Number two, it takes denial. It takes 
denial. Number three, it takes dedication. It takes dedication, number three. And number four, it takes direction. As we continue here in verse 23, and he said to all, if anyone, and that includes you and I here this morning, would come after me, follow me, believe in me, understand who I am, that I am the Christ, that I am the Messiah, and you have put your full faith and trust in me, and as a result, you've received salvation, you've received the forgiveness of sin, you've received the new life that comes and the new birth that Christ provides for us, and now you want to live for me in that new life here on this earth prior to your death or prior to my coming. That's what come after me means. If anyone would come after me, first and foremost, let him deny himself. So many have tried to define this phrase for us. Some have reduced it to simple denial of certain things within this world, that we are denying ourselves of these certain things that our world has to offer us. Others have reduced it to say, it's no longer living for myself, but living for others. But in each case, I think those definitions are incomplete. Yes, there will be a certain denial of the things of this world that God says we should not practice or participate in. Yes, it does include in the construct of loving our neighbor as ourselves, putting others before ourselves. But Jesus knew, God knows, that if we are not going to live fully for him, we are then going to live fully for ourselves. That is the opposite of. That's the counterpoint to living a life for God. It is living a life for ourselves. And Jesus said that if you're truly going to come after me, you have to no longer desire to live for yourself but live to the glory of God. Seek His will, His purpose, His desires for your life. And I believe that He does have a purpose and plan for each and every one of us. I believe that He has a will for you. And it's not something that you have to search out like Indiana Jones searching out the different uh, articles of you know his archaeology. I think that sitting and abiding in Christ and sitting at his feet, his will will find you. Because I know that he wants you to know and discover what that will is. Because the Bible says in Ephesians 2.10 that he has prepared you for certain work from the foundations of the world. And this is the purpose of your salvation that you would fulfill that work. But if we are going to follow him, First and foremost, we are going to have to reconcile the fact that we are going to have to deny ourselves. Paul talked about this in Romans, seeing ourselves dead to ourselves and carried on throughout the New Testament. We know that self plays an enormous role in our culture today. We told people for years, decades, that most of the problems that they were experiencing life was due to the fact of a condition of low self-esteem. That self-esteem had been bolstered over 10, 20, 30 years, and now we have a society that is plagued by entitlement. We have a society that often makes the world, their worldview begin and end with themselves. That it's all about me. And yet... Do you realize that today we have a culture that is absolutely 
uh, divorced from all relationships because of self. If two people are trying to have a mutual relationship with one another and self is the object of their desire, in each case, they're not going to have a very strong relationship, are they? And this creates loneliness. And loneliness is plaguing our society today. Psychologists tell us that loneliness is one of the number one reasons that people consult psychologists today. Self will not allow for the development of healthy relationships within a society. Marriages are failing because it's all about self. You know, it's a 50-50 partnership. I think that one who agrees to a marriage such as that is truly missing all that that marriage is meant to be. Let me explain. In Christianity, and I believe God designed marriage, I believe that God has called me as a husband to give myself 100% to my wife, to love her as Jesus Christ loved the church. And I believe that Jesus Christ has called her to give 100% of herself to me. And therefore, in each case, I'm not receiving 50%, I'm receiving 100 and so is she. But if our relationship was based on selfishness, we would never consider giving 100% of ourselves to our spouse. But if we base the relationship on selflessness, then each one can enjoy what God has created the marriage to be and to enjoy it as he created it to be. Self is an enormous problem today, and we see the effects of it. We see the problems with it in our society today. But Jesus said, the very first thing that you will have to do is to deny himself, yourself. And then, take up his cross daily. Notice that. Take up his cross daily. What does that mean? Well, in that culture, this was not a phrase that needed to be explained. When an individual was sentenced to death, execution, in the Roman Empire, they were crucified. It was meant to make a spectacle out of them. That spectacle began by them carrying the crossbeam of the cross on their shoulders to the place of the crucifixion, the execution. That crossbeam was called the patablum. And the patablum was strapped to the back of the individual as they walked through the streets. And as they walked through the streets, they were jeered, they were mocked, things were thrown at them, they were spit upon, etc. They were the scourge of society. All of the woes of society were often blamed upon the individuals who were being crucified. For example... If a Jewish individual would rise up in insurrection against the Roman government at that time, and if he would be caught for that crime, they would make a spectacle out of him, but they would also public, uh, publicly punish the people of the city in some way, either through taxation or through physical violence, to let the public know that this one individual has brought this upon you. And it was meant to suppress any kind of further insurrection going forward. So when that individual carried the cross down the, the roadway to the place of the execution, the people were often reacting to that individual already having, having been punished by the Roman Empire. And so they were mad. And they were lashing out especially when it came to Jesus, because he claimed to be their king. And so the people mocked him. And this was the last place that anybody ever wanted to find themselves in, and Jesus is asking in the Greek that you do it voluntarily, that you voluntarily pick up your cross. The cross doesn't represent some burden that God puts upon us. We all have a cross to bear. That's inaccurate. That's not what he is saying here. He is saying to each and every one who will follow him, you will be mocked, you will be hated, you will be looked at as the scourge of society. Aren't you glad you came from an, for an upbeat message this morning? You know, any way that I can encourage you, I'm here to do that just for you. You know, 
Because we want to help you have your worst life now. No. And so Jesus wanted to prepare his disciples. We know that all 11 of them were martyred after the death of Jesus Christ. He wanted to prepare them. You're not going to be hailed. You're not going to become celebrities. You're not going to be uh, you know, brought into positions of great power. You're not going to be looked upon favorably for following me after I ascend and return to my Father in heaven. You have to be willing to carry on, to take that cross to that place of, of execution, to that place where you die to yourself, and so forth. Where you are willing no longer to seek self-preservation, but are willing to sacrifice your life for my name's sake. That you adopt a life of suffering rather than seeking to survive within our world today. And this is discovered through this instrument, the cross. And you therefore shall experience the reproach, the burden, the hatred, the scourge of the society in which you live. Again, he is preparing his disciples, telling them up front what they can experience. Now, here in the United States of America, we are blessed to live in a context that allows us the religious freedoms that we have. But we see that in many cases, those religious freedoms are appearing to disappear, aren't they? One right after another. And as a result, the context that we have operated in for so long is changing around us. I believe that we need to be personally responsible as Christians with the freedoms that God has given us here in the United States of America. I also believe that we should petition our politicians to vote against anything that would curtail the religious freedoms that are found in our Constitution as rights for us as citizens of the United States. But as that context changes, is it really difficult to see that in some time in the future we may be persecuted for our Christian faith? Well, we already are academically. Christian professors in many cases have been asked to leave prominent universities believing that their Christian faith can no longer be tolerated in the classroom in the ideas of science and so forth or in history? Is it very difficult to see that in the future it may occur that at one time that from the pulpit we cannot read a passage of Scripture that disagrees with the lifestyle of an individual? It'll be considered hate speech? Is that really where our nation is going? Yeah, the context is changing very quickly, isn't it? And we need to learn that becoming a Christian comes with a cost. And we can no longer live for ourselves and, and follow Christ. We're going to find ourselves in places of compromise and conflict over and over and over again in doing so we're going to have to be willing voluntarily to take up that cross and, and to bear the weight of the ridicule and the criticism of the world around us. And we're going to have to do it daily, each and every day preparing our heart for this reality that Jesus says that we can anticipate. Oh, trust me, I don't look forward to it. But I do look to the future and say it is certainly probable that this is what we are going to experience sooner than later. And then he says, follow me. Meaning that each and every day we make the conscious decision to follow Jesus Christ. It can all be summed up in this way, and I love the way this one pastor put it. He said, 
All three of these can be summed up in the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion, where he knelt before the Father and he said, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done through me. This is Christianity, where we relinquish the reins of our life to our Heavenly Father. And we allow Him to take us forward. That we submit ourselves as Christians and say, No longer my will, Lord, but Your will be done. This is the cost of Christianity that Jesus Christ is asking us to consider. This is the example in which He laid down for us. You know, we're telling people that if we just love each other as we need to love each other according to the world's standard, we would have perfect peace and unity throughout the world, right? No one loved more than Jesus himself, and he was hated for it. Because in that love, there was a righteousness that was also to be found. And he just didn't applaud every lifestyle, uh, and he just didn't applaud every action, but he loved unconditionally in righteousness. And as we do the same to others, our love will be misinterpreted. Our love will be equated in this world as hate. And as a result, we will be persecuted for it. But notice what he says next. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Meaning, if you are unwilling to lay down your life before Jesus Christ and follow him, and try to save it by living according to the world's standards apart from him, in actuality, you've lost your life. In the end, you will die. And after your death, you will spend an eternity separated from God in a place created for the devil and the angels, a place called hell. Jesus says, yes, you can seek to save your life, but in the end, you will lose it. Or you will lose your life for my name's sake, and you will save it. Verse 24. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He's not talking about just mere martyrism. One who gives his life physically for the purposes of God. He's talking about one giving the totality of his life for the purposes of God. Beginning with the correct identification of who Jesus is and him being the Messiah, God himself, there's only one place for him to reign within my life and that is a place of preeminence as Paul lists for us in Colossians 2, that he is the king. He's not only my savior, but he's my Lord. And I now was bought and paid for not by precious stones or precious metals, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. My life is no longer my own. Paul said it this way, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. This is the way we need to see it, our Christian faith. And as a result, if we lose our life in that way, for his name's sake, we will save it. Eternal life will be given to us. And though we die here, as Jesus says, we're simply falling asleep. As the New Testament uses that word for sleep, for anyone who is a Christian, we open our eyes and we are in heaven for all eternity. But notice what he says as he goes on. He asks the question. It's a question that I want each and every one of us to ponder this morning. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and loses or forfeits himself. What does it matter if you gain everything that this world has to offer? Fame, fortune, power, prestige, etc. But in the end, you lose it all and yourself on top of it. What does it matter? How does that benefit you in any way, shape, or form? For notice in verse 26... 
For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the glory of the holy angels. When I do come to set my kingdom back up, those who have been ashamed of me and therefore cowered under the uh, weight of persecution that the world had placed against us, and therefore that persecution led to compromise rather than firm commitment to Christ. Because I was ashamed of him. I was ashamed of him when the conversation came up at work about evolution. I was ashamed of him when the conversation came up about alternative lifestyles. I was ashamed of him when someone said that all roads lead to heaven. I was ashamed of him when uh, someone said that Jesus was the only way and people barked and ridiculed after that individual and I didn't stand up alongside of them. Because I was ashamed. And Jesus says, then when I do come in my glory, and the glory of the Father, and the glory of the holy angels, I will be ashamed of you. Hard words, man. I'll, I'll tell you. It's difficult, difficult words. But notice what he says here. But I tell you that truly... There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. A perfect segue into our message next week as Jesus moves to the Mount of Transfiguration. But I believe that Jesus ends this portion of his teaching or his discussion with the disciples to let them know that I know you anticipated the establishment of the kingdom of God right here, right now. And some of you here will not taste death until you see it. And I believe he's speaking of the transfiguration, which takes place next. But you and I, we still anticipate the kingdom of God being installed here on planet Earth. You and I know, I believe now, that politicians can't lead us into this utopia that we've been promised, right? Only God can do that. Only God can deliver what he has promised. Yes, it's, it's easier to live under the weight of some of the <clears throat> politicians than others. And that we as believers in Jesus Christ should <clears throat> exercise that wonderful uh, right to vote and to make our voice heard and clear. Because I have a daughter, and if you have children, I am concerned about the nation that we're leaving to them. I am concerned about the uh, destruction that we have created before them or allowed to happen before them that they are going to have to take responsibility for. But that being said, I've also now realized that as a Christian, most likely I won't be celebrated for my Christian faith. It's not going to be popular amongst many any longer. That I will be persecuted for it, if not physically, uh, definitely verbally, academically for sure, but in many ways. But Jesus told me beforehand that this is what it's going to take. This is what you can anticipate experiencing, and this is what you can look forward to. Gee, thanks. But again, Jesus always tells us what we need to hear, not necessarily what we want to hear. And he does so because he loves us. He does so because he loves us and wants to be, us to be prepared for these things. But once I realize that he's the king of kings, that he's the Lord of lords, that he spoke everything into creation. Coming back from Door County this year was very difficult because we had one of those moments that was, a, I call a God moment in our lives. There's a place in Door County, Wisconsin called Newport State Beach. And NASA has consider, now uh, called it a dark zone. And you say, what does that mean, a dark zone? I don't know if I want to go there. Well, you want to go there. Because you sit out on the beach, and as the sun sets in to the back of you in the west, 
There is no artificial light to inhibit the display of the Milky Way galaxy above you. And I'm sitting there on the beach of Lake Michigan, hearing the waves in complete darkness, looking up to the sky, and it looked like a planetarium. I saw the, the you know, gaseous clouds of the Milky Way. We saw shooting stars. I saw six. Uh, they only saw three. That's because God loves me more. No. Um, but they saw a comet, which was really cool, and I didn't even get that one. But here's the reason I say this. Because we started quoting the Psalms as we were looking up, knowing that the galaxy, this is the work of our Father in heaven, that He did all of this. That He, is, he has done all of this, and yet He is mindful of man. Not that He's just mindful, but that He loves us. And that he came in the person of Jesus Christ to bridge the gap between me and the Father because of the sin that, was, uh, that had devastated my life and brought forth death. And he went to the cross for me. And he died for me. And he was ridiculed and he was mocked for me. And he hung there on the cross in absolute agony for me. And the judgment of the Father was placed on His shoulders that I deserve. What in the world is more important than Him? If we truly believe that that is what He has done for us, then why in the world would we look to anything in the world and seek to compromise our faith in Jesus Christ? When we know who He is, is it really difficult for us to deny ourselves? to take up our cross and to follow Him. Because when He does return, He will return in glory. Not riding in on the back of a donkey into a city, but returning through the parted clouds on a white horse. And coming in the glory of not only Himself, but the Father and the holy angels. Establishing that this was no mere prophet, as some had said. This is no mere man, as some who said. This is not John the Baptist resurrected, as some who said, or Elijah. This is the Son of Man, the Son of God, God Himself. And He did all of this because He loved me. He chose to love me. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. He just chose it. And while we were yet sinners, He died on the cross for us. So Paul asks us a question at the end of the book of Romans. He asks us this question. Appealing to us, now knowing that all that Jesus Christ has done for us and because of who he is, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is that will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's the way Paul saw his life, that I'm a living sacrifice before the Lord, because he bought and paid for me. I'm his now. I no longer live for myself. I deny myself. I willfully take up the cross and follow him. I can't do it in my own. The Spirit of God does it in and through me. And I follow after him. Folks, I want to give each and every person an opportunity to know for sure that if anything were to happen to you tonight, for tomorrow is promised to no one, the Bible says, you may have been coming to church your whole entire life, You may have served in ministry. You may have, um, you know, given a few dollars of your hard-earned money to the church. But know this, that unless you have committed your life to Christ, unless you have put your full faith and trust in Him and Him alone, in the day of the death, Jesus said something very scary to some. He says, they will come to me and they will say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all of these things in your name? And, he, and he'll say to them, 
Matthew 7, 21. Depart from me. I never knew you. Have you repented of your sins and put your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation? That's how one is saved. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. That's it. But today, so many sit in church and they think, just because I sit in church, I'm a Christian. I can stand in a garage for a week. It doesn't make me a car, does it? It doesn't make me a car at all. I could stand in the middle of a pasture with, the other, with, with a hundred cows and it doesn't make me a cow, does it? No. I don't know where that last example came from. <laughs> I, I don't even want to credit that to the Spirit. I don't even know how we got there. You know, I saw a lot of cows coming home from Wisconsin, so maybe that was it. Sometimes I just ask, Lord, your sense of humor kills me. Um, folks, I just I really want to ask you this question because it has been estimated that one out of five people who attend church have never accepted Christ as their Savior. So I want to pray with you right now, if I may. Let's bow our heads. Father, we come before you this morning. You know each and every person here personally. You brought them here today, Lord. This was their appointment with you. And as they've been confronted with the reality of Jesus asking the question, but who do you say that I am? I pray that they would consider that question personally. Who do you say Jesus is? Because once Peter made the declaration, they now were responsible to submit to the reality of who Jesus is. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today who doesn't know for sure that if something were to happen to them, that they would be immediately with you in heaven afterwards, after they die. I pray right now that you would open their eyes and their heart and that they would cry out to you, repent of their sins, and believe on Jesus Christ. Just throw themselves at the foot of Christ just crying out to him and just saying, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I believe in you. I trust you for my, for my salvation. You and you alone. Now, Father, allow me to walk as you would have me to walk. Allow me to live as you would have me to live, Lord, through the power of your Spirit. Father, it's, your word tells us clearly that at this point, we can become new creations in Christ, that all the old things have passed away and all things become brand new. Father, that can happen right here, right now, to anyone, for anyone, who places their faith and trust in you. Father, I don't care what they have done. I don't care if they feel that their sin is irremountable and that they're completely unforgivable. Father, you can forgive anything if they will come to you and embrace you and your son. Father, I pray for every person here today that we would not leave here today without knowing for sure that we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you and we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.